and welcome. This is the uh, Sirens edition of uh, Catalogs and Noise for uh, James Joyce's Ulysses. My name is Joe. I'm here with Tom, Josh, Dave. All right. Um, so, what are you doing? All right. <laughs> so, I want to start off um, with the the idea that I am overwhelmed by sirens in the in a similar way. Yeah. I think we made the point with uh, Scylla and Charybdis that. It's so big, and there's so many ideas, and it's so complicated that you kind of get lost in it. This is how I feel in Sirens as well. I actually think that's the best. I, I mean, I think that this and Skill and Charybdis are the best chapters we've read so far, and among the, my top five for this reason. But it is like staggeringly complex. No. Yeah. No. Um, no. no. <laughs> See, we're playing. We're, yeah, we're I feel. I feel like I, I, for I, for a couple of days after I read this, I think I was thinking yeah. in that sort of truncated, <laughs> like you know, nuggets of speech, basically. Yeah. Joyce changes your thought patterns, you know. <laughs> so, so as a way in, I was I was really thinking a lot today about like how do you begin this conversation? How do you kind of <clears throat> organize thoughts? And I think the way in is Homer. All right, so. And I don't know that I have a, a kind of like solid read on this yet, but if we go to Odysseus and what's happening during the Sirens uh, episode, um, he is somebody that wants to experience, but is hold, held back, right? Um, that he needs to feel, he needs to be restrained in order to get the full experience of, yes. of, of seeing the Sirens, of... Yes. Experiencing it. And that, without being, that, and that corresponds to something that's actually happening. Right. As he's about to be lured into the sentimentality of the song. Okay. That's how I looked at it. Right, yeah. You're well, looking I, at me like I'm crazy. No, that's no, no, how no, I not at all. it right away. <laughs> I, I was thinking, I think there's maybe three or four different ways to look at it. I think that's okay. one of them. Sentimentality. Yeah, right? the nostalgia for the past, right? The siren song is basically like the glories of the past and like an easy future. And, like, all these guys are tired old men who are singing, you know, rebel songs from 1798, right? Or at least in the case of the Crappie Boy. Yeah, and Bloom, right. Bloom is, Bloom's only take on that is, like, you know, they're, they love singing about martyrs. They love singing about dying. You know, it's basically a cult of death. And he wants to get out before the end. Like, he wants to escape. He doesn't succumb to that sentimentality, right? He even says, boy, that Crappie Boy was a pretty dumb idiot, you know, who was taken yeah. in by the fake priest. But, but, but also, when that... Me- Towards the end, Bloom is starting to, you know, more intense emotional ideas are starting to get kicked up inside of him. And he realizes that. And I think he he staunches that. And I think it is because music itself is drumming up those emotions. Oh, sure. So his rejection of music is kind of going along with what you assume, which not that Joyce is rejecting music, but, you know, positing that it it might not be uh, the greatest of the arts because it does pluck on the emotions of every person. All right, so, yeah, I agree with all of that. I don't think he's completely rejecting music, though. He's rejecting... I took it back. I took it back. Yeah, this brand of sentimental music, right? The music he enjoys comes from himself. Well, it comes from, like, Molly taking a piss or something, right? right? When he talks about chamber music. Like, he, he, again, Bloom is so earthy, right? He's like, like anything can make music. Is right? it fair to say, then, his music is a personal history as opposed to the collective... Romanticized well, history. You want to say personal? He's ra- he's wrapping what string around his finger. Right, he's yeah. making his own music, and he well, yeah. whether it's his you know flatulating at the end, right. you know, with the ass horn or whatever, tying himself to the mask. <laughs> yeah, that's that, right? that's what I saw too. Yeah. yeah, I don't know why I said that. I, <laughs> I like know. that. Uh, no, I, I think that's right. You know what Simon represents is 
is this kind of like look backwards. Bloom never looks backwards, right? He's always forward looking. That's why he doesn't have a backwards. That's why he's right? the modern hero. In some ways, didn't we suggest he was sort of cut off from his lineage? In, in some ways, we, he almost can't look backwards, right? To a certain extent, yes, yeah, it's true. I think that's but right. this is the same Joyce of Dubliners. This is the same Joyce of Portrait, and he seems to, you know, he, he has uh, an issue with with that, you know, the older generation <clears throat> and the fact that they're always backward looking, and they seem to be, you know, have these sentimental feelings. For, for things that he blames, you know, he blames the current plight of Ireland on that generation as if they didn't, you know, they may have rested too much on on those ideas of the past and they're just sort of settled and they're not moving any, you know, forward at all. Yeah, I think that's right. So Stagnant. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Stagnant and then also going to lead to like the, I mean, granted, it dates past this, but it's going to lead to like the Easter rebellions of what, 1916, which ultimately aren't going to do anything right, right. Like it's, see everything kind of does and doesn't yeah. because I, if I'm trying to think of the history but they get a home rule passed in either 1912 or 1914 like right on the eve but then of you get the World war, war one then the, so the war puts right. it on the back burner and then they get dominion status in 21 22 and so they don't get full-fledged independence mm-hmm. until much later so it's coming in like these really slow stages so a generation will go by before the next step actually happens mm. yeah all right, so other thing, I think there, there's a couple more things that I was kind of trying to think through here. There's also the sense that um, Bloom doesn't want to kind of physically go into that other room and be one of the drunks at the bar as well, right? right. That there, there's something about the idea of wanting to be a kind of part of the community, but not wanting to kind of fall into the debauchery of a Simon Daedalus or, you know, these other guys, you brought up, you brought up uh, well, two things I want to address. First of all, the geography of the Ormond, uh, yeah. Ormond Hotel. I don't understand it. I don't and I couldn't figure out when Bloom was in, when Bloom was out at yeah. times, and like who's actually... Yeah, so I, I thought he was there's across three the street. There's three places. No, it's all the same building, but there's the dining room where Bloom and okay. Richie Goulding are. Then there's the saloon slash stage area okay. where Simon, Ben, and Bob Cowley are. The women. the women are in the bar. So there's three kind of places, right? Because right? it's a big hotel complex. So Bloom is in the area getting his, you know, he can, it's all connected. But do you but think they visually see each other? I think, well, Bloom can Bloom clearly see the yeah. sirens right. because remember, he's watching Miss Deuce, okay. you know, the bronze one, when she doesn't realize that he's watching her. And so I, I always assume that it's kind of like, you know, you've got the dining room, which is adjacent to the bar. So they're basically connected. Clearly, there's a door that connects the saloon slash stage area with the piano. Because uh, remember, Bloom actually asked Death Bothered Pat to open <laughs> the uh, the door, set it slightly ajar. So, let me ask you, I, so I, I thought there was a distinction between the bar area where Simon is and the dining area. I got that. But why is there a separate place for the women? Is that some kind of... No, like, no, the, the women are at the bar. The women are actually so. serving the drinks right. at the bar. Yeah. Then there's the saloon slash... I think call it the saloon, but I think it's the, the stage area. Let's not call That's it the saloon. That's all one place, so... It's, it? Well, it's, there, there's clearly a separation. One, uh, no, there's a door. There's a door that connects the, the stage area where the sure. concerts are. Because they have concerts uh, there. I figured right? it, I, I pictured it's just like a piano at a bar. No, it's, but, it's, it's, it's in its own room. There's an actual stage there. They would uh, have concerts there, like amateur concerts okay. there. All right. Uh, kind of like Maxwell's. Okay. Kind of like Maxwell's. Kind of so you think it's like, like, yeah. And then there's... Yeah. Very yeah. much like I that. Guess, yeah. Except, that except imagine Maxwell's, which sadly no longer exists, yeah. but imagine Maxwell's in a uh, place in Hoboken. 
And uh, the uh, greatest you, place in the world. Well, it was <laughs> the only, was the only reason ever to go to Hope. All right, listen, don't get all Simon Davis <laughs> on us. Anyway, oh, you have you walk into Maxwell's and you've got the bar and dining area. Actually, no, Maxwell's is actually a perfect example. Because remember, right. the dining area is a little separate from yeah. where the bar yeah. was. That's good. And there's two bars. Yeah, there's one the bar in, the, in the where the bands play. Okay. Yeah, I see. I I guess but, I didn't need, necessarily need a separate performance area I thought this was more about just like guys singing in the middle of a bar that's how I yeah. pictured it playing out why do I need to go to a separate room because the Ormond actually has it because, like it's a real place right. and because probably that's where the piano's located yeah. and it's probably practical and also your, think, your imagination separate from what Joyce wanted to write <laughs> I understand that but I'm I think trying also, to catch up with Joyce's batshit crazy prose <laughs> ah, you know, I think you guys are too I mean I think you're you're making much more of this as being a difficult chapter than no, this once you recognize no no, <laughs> once you recognize from the man who's read it how many times seven. yeah but look once you've read it several times it actually makes sense right yeah, sure. you read it you see that the first two pages so are like the an Bible. <laughs> Come on, give me a break. You read the first two pages enough times, you realize that's an overture, right? Then you start yeah, seeing like, no. okay, I'm reckoning. Yes, no, yes. You, you realize it's an overture because you read the fucking shit ton of, of, of ancillary material that helps you understand that a little bit more. <laughs> but it... No, and I, even, get, I even guess if, you can... Like, you some have. of you are like, oh, I guess, okay, that phrase is somewhere else, that phrase right. is somewhere else, but it, no, it... it I, I think reading it without other things, you're still in the dark about this. I... I Yes. I, I mean, if it, somebody figured it out, are we going to talk about this recording at some point? Because it what helps. Recording? The the oh. one we talked about before. Oh yeah, so yeah, we were, right before recording, we were talking about listening to the was a LibriVox. Uh, well, it was it was made. It was a 1982 yeah. recording for the centenary of uh, Joyce's death, birth rather. Right, he's right. born in uh, 82, 1882, and uh, I don't know that it was basically like uh, the equivalent of the BBC, but in Ireland. And it's awesome. It's, it's, it's totally worth checking out. It's, yeah. it's an audiobook reading, but it yeah. has performance elements. Yeah. It's too. dramatic. And, and this chapter in particular, which is the first one I've listened to, I've, I've resisted until now. Um, I was just curious because everyone, you know, recommended so much because of the musicality of it. I thought it helped quite a bit in just kind of establishing place and character yes, and all yes. of those things. But I actually thought that my reading of it was far more musical than the actor's readings of it really? on the recording. But yes. now, but you've you've read this four or five times, right? I've read yes. it a couple times. I, so when you get to a th- like like the clap clappy clap clap clap, right? I can actually follow a rhythm in my head that I don't think the the actor would necessarily. I, I think with. they actually made an effort though. Like for example, every time the Boylan stuff goes on, the the person doing the Boylan like the jingle yeah. John, like they really. They, they, they show just how ridiculous Blaze's Boylan yeah. actually seems, <laughs> right? He's like a dandy affect on his Right, he's the, only, he's the only character of, of this that clearly is meant to be, like, the, the Don Giovanni, like, over the top. Yeah, like, yeah. this guy is not believable because he's just crazy. He's like, like a character. And every time you see yeah. him, you know, it's, he's always introduced by his hat or his, like, sky blue like socks that. with clocks and, you know, stuff Tan like that. shoes. But, yeah, I mean, creaking look, shoes. Again, I'm going to come off as a pretentious ass here, but... I I want the purity of my imagination to come through. I, I sure. really think listening to an audiobook is disruptive to my experience. I get that, but I started this on Lester Jonians, and since then, I've been able to actually engage the text oh, at the sure. level of conversation that this podcast is occurring at, right? Because otherwise, I remember in Aeolus, I was just swimming amidst people kind of coming in and out. I was losing the narrative. So... I understand that when you get to a certain level where you've experienced the art and you've spent time with it, you want that imaginative sensibility to take over. I totally get that. But as far as a first read, 
in order to like just appreciate and enjoy the text. Getting, you're getting your bearings. This yeah. I'm getting my bearings in a text that's probably one of the most difficult I've ever tried to read in my life. You sure. Know? So without it, I don't even think I'd be able to engage much in this conversation. It's an interpretation, right? Like yeah, that, sure. that, yeah, it's, it's an interpretation. Yeah. I just want to respond to what Tom was saying. Oh, Jesus, um, no, no, no. Tom, I agree <laughs> with everything you say. Like, I, I think that it, uh, a book like this, I think it rewards multiple readings and also yeah. rewards multiple like readings of ancillary material. And I think, I think that that like for me, like, you know, I imagine reading sirens for the first time with no, with no background or basis, it would certainly be a challenge. Um, but, uh, I've now read it multiple times. You know, I've read the, the Gifford commentary cover to cover. Yeah. I've read all that stuff. And I, once you have all of that now, granted it presupposes that you are going to make the effort and read through all of that. I think it's it's a re- very rewarding experience. I think it pays off, right? Okay. So first, I'm not saying that it's not rewarding, yeah. uh, but I'm saying that I'll represent the hoi polloi on this one. <laughs> a, a pedestrian walking up to this book is going to struggle with it, and unless you're going to put in tons and tons of fucking hours, which the average person does not have, it's going to be difficult. I'm not saying that that makes it bad, but it makes it frustrating. Like I want to reach all, reach over and smack Joyce in the head, and and sirens <laughs> is extremely difficult. I, 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 you know, that's your opinion that you don't think it is. I think I'm no. representing the everyday. It is, it is tough, and the average person can't just keep you know reading ancillary material about it. Yeah, my second read of the chapter, and then when I listen to the audio one, it, it it's a lot clearer than it was in the beginning. But that first time, you are just you're just you're just you know steeped in words that are coming at you from all sorts of direction, and you can't make hide or hair of, of what's going on. Yeah, and I, I think to some degree here. That's the intention, right? It's I mean, by design. Because like, way it's like, more so than ever before. It's like yeah. it's like music, though. Like in that sense, like if you embrace that. Now, granted, I mean, you have to, you know, you have to let those words wash over you without necessarily finding, you know, the theme. Because think, like in an overture, you're okay. hearing you're hearing things that you that you're not prepared to hear, and that makes sense when that's, you later uh, hear the symphony, right? There's it. something in an overture that's melodious. That is true. Okay. The, 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 yeah, yeah, for okay. me. The analog would be as if you plucked out cacophonous notes and, and or you know shoved them like into the beginning because that's what you're getting. You're getting a page and a half of things that don't seem they seem disjointed. Right. I mean, obviously you make it through, but in an overture, you're sitting there very very relaxed and you're enjoying it because you're you're getting a sampling of the tastes of what you're going to be listening to. That is, you know, there is still true. melody. So this right? is like a collage of cacophony but, but, in this form of words. But this is only a page and a half, right? Which you can read over and over again like this chapter yeah. is very short you can read this chapter probably in maybe an hour right and then read it again and then read it again like holy shit i see what's going on here right i see that this is this is clearly meant to be an overture it's like this is the keyboard we've established the notes and now i'm seeing it developed as it goes on yeah i think that's, it, that's it, the only point that i'm making like yeah. i think again it presupposes devoting a lot of time yes. to reading that i totally get and i i, I think you got it. <laughs> I think that it does require a certain uh, degree of intelligence also. I think you're, oh, you're, sure. you're dismissing that any person can kind of dig into it and everything is going to be I'd fine. like to think, though. No, I'd like absolutely to think. not. <laughs> Dave, you want to take a vote on this? You have, you have strange ideas about, uh, <laughs> I think, 
the average person's dude. You're uh, living in the ability. Tower, so no, I'm I'm celebrating the fact that uh, I think that anybody can read this, provided that you're willing to put the time in. I think I think the idea to say no, no, this is so difficult, don't even bother. I don't. I just I feel like that's not the right take on this. That I I don't mind reading something that is that doesn't present. Um, you, it's I don't mind. Go go on. Yeah, that's what you. That's what you're speaking on behalf of you. Right. I don't think the average person can 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 wrestle with. This. Well, I don't think the average person reads. <laughs> that's definitely <laughs> right. They like, can't I, read, and they don't want to read it. Then you you say, oh, but I'm thinking people that I, I, audio book. But people that enjoy reading, I think I, anybody that enjoys reading, I would recommend this to. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, I even somebody that. that's reading only like James Patterson, like, well, stretch <laughs> stretch yourself a bit, yo. Know? After course, you read, along came a spider. Read some. You listen. No, I, I totally. By, I by totally the way, I'm kind of I'm kind of freaking out about Finnegan's Wake. Well, <laughs> Finnegan's Wake is yeah. This is so this is fuck? this is James Patterson compared to Finnegan's Wake. Yeah, so what the fuck? Well, we'll worry about that when we get there. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. All right, let's go back to the text. So, or big ideas rather, not even to the text. So, so it, it's very much about I think Bloom's kind of disengagement with kind of that cultural Dublin marker, you know, drinking and telling stories and all of that. The, but it's not just that he's removed from it, right? He enjoys the experience of it. He is a guy that wants to be social. I think it, I think th- this this situation tells you a lot about his kind of inner tensions. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, because think about it. Like, the camaraderie that he has is so limited, right? He's right. at a distance. And so he... He clearly wants some sort of camaraderie, but the camaraderie that he gets, he, he belittles. Like, so, for example, he hangs out with Richie Goulding in this chapter, but it's clear that he's... He's condescending to Richie, right? Like, he recognizes that Richie's got, like, you know, that Richie's an alcoholic, that Richie right. is, oh, here he goes again, talking about, like, music, and he's going to say the same thing, that Richie does say the same thing that he says over and over again. When he's with uh, Nosy Flynn, who seems like a genuinely nice guy, he's got nice things, he's dismissive of Nosy Flynn. McCoy, same thing. And yet, he does want some sort of camaraderie, right? Yeah. But it's always at a distance, Right. right. It's like it's yeah. almost like he's in, in fact the only common currency that he has with other men is Molly. Right. Which is why this chapter I think is I mean it, one of the questions I had is why make the chapter the crisis chapter of Ulysses? Right. This is the crisis around which the entire novel turns. It's four o'clock. Because it's four o'clock. It's four o'clock, and that's when Boylan is meeting Molly. That's the crisis of the novel. Why make it the most musical, playful part of the novel? Why make it the most shining, radiant, fun part of the novel? Because it's like an opera. Like, this is so perfectly like, it's already like a comic opera. And just how, imagine how glum and gloomy and unbloom-like it would be if it were done in this, like, plodding, like, sadness. I think that the musical architecture of it raises it almost to like a comic level, like comedy in the true sense of the word, because ultimately we are going to have a, you know, a happy ending. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting you say that, because I, I took a note about how I almost feel like Joyce in some ways, and this might be a chapter as an example, in some ways he's almost more concerned with the sound of words and of what language can do, rather than the actual meaning of it on the page. You know, he And, and this chapter kind of plays with that, so... Uh, to, for you to call it kind of like operatic in some ways, I don't know. It's interesting. I hadn't really thought about that. Okay, so so can I tie? Let me try and tie some things up. I think so. One of the other things that that he's um, Odyssean like in terms of the siren story is the jealousy, right? The role that Blazes Boylan plays here, how he 
they're, they're, he's certainly not happy about this situation, but almost kind of intrigued by it, wanting to see it play out, right? We, we, we talked about this before, the connections back to exiles. Uh, exiles and some things in Joyce's own life. That seems to be coming to a head here, too. And I was thinking a lot about the music. I think Dave is absolutely right that w- the, mu- the point of the music here is that meaning comes more from style than it does from actual literal substance, right? That, that the connotations of the, are, are more important than the denotations, Right? I think that's what I'm getting from the music. When you see a word that is spelled blue who, right? It tells me more about Bloom and its place in the world than actually saying Bloom, who, space, who, or whatever combination you're going to use. This is, I think, Bloom the character conceiving a new way to think about the world. And I think all the music kind of plays that out. You know what I'm saying? I don't know if I'm being articulate. I don't know, though, that it's it's inconsistent, though, with the worldview that we've seen already from Bloom's no, character. No, but because right. we're in crisis mode, as you said, it's all kind of coming to crescendo. Sure. Yeah. It, it's, it's, this is epiphany time, in a way. It's him, because it's do or die. Yeah, here. this is the moment this where is, he can this stop. This is the 11th hour, and he has to do something or live with it. Yeah. So this is him coping, reimagining how to take in information, seeing how... Seeing that context is more important than, than the actual thing. That maybe living in this kind of um, open relationship is more with the love of his wife is more important than the strictures of traditional marriage. Right. Or, or maybe paying attention to the music music that exists in your life is easier than having to deal with what it all means. Right. Yeah, it's almost perhaps even a coping mechanism of sorts. Well, it certainly is a coping mechanism, right? Because at one point when the music stops, he says, "I wish the music would start again so that I could take my mind off this." Right? right? Yeah, but um, but I think it's more than just kind of the way his mind is playing out. I think it's a change in overall mentality. Well, think it's about a it. Philo- this is a, a philosophy shift for him. Right. Well, think about it also. So most of the Mandalorian. music that is that is. Uh, celebrated here is the you know the Italian high opera, right? Already not even high opera, Bel but Canto. you know. What's bel canto, right? And like even with Simon talking about like Italian, you know, it's the only language, even though he probably can't speak a word of it, right? And so you think of like the the you know traditional Italian opera, right? It always ends with the the jealous husband killing the lover or mm-hmm. tragedy and whatnot. Yeah, Bloom. This is he's now cast in that role, and his reaction to it is meh. Yeah, meh. And ba- not yeah, only yeah. meh, all all of that sort of drama, like even the drama of like Robert Emmett, right? The you know the the hero of what eighteen oh four or whatever, who was going to try to blow up the par- Irish Parliament. You know, he's reading those that famous epitaph, and you know he it's you know you have this duet of him reading it and farting at the same time. His response is it's kind of like we saw the the Italian teacher's ass at the end of Wandering Rocks in the face of uh, the vice regal uh, procession. Here we have you know the response of that kind of that's let me tell you how I feel about that kind of heroics, and it's a fart, right? Yeah, it's a rejection uh, of that. What do you mean by the math? Because at, at different points in time, he expresses sadness. There is sadness. There is, there is absolute sadness. Sadness is not indifference. But though. no, but it's not indifference. Um, I, I don't know that I agree with Mets. Meh, meh, I don't even know how to say that. No, no, Joe said it. Oh man. But I think I think his response is that he's not going to succumb to what like the effects of florid music to because remember he even thinks I could follow but ultimately rejects it right and I think he's ultimately without actually ever saying it the idea is acceptance. And move on. I think I, when, when I said Matt, I think the totality, right? The overall, 
non-action, right? The idea of choosing passivity over action is the met, I meant. Because that's ultimately what, what it comes down right, to. Right, get in line with the, the marching band of fate, right? Like my favorite passage in this is yeah. where he starts meditating on the guy that's hitting the bass drum, right? In the, the marching band. And then he starts thinking about you know, all kinds of music and it's just kind of like the stream of music and just get into it and like move along, you know, like anyone who gets out of line and does something crazy, like what's, what's the point of it, right? That, just, just let doing. it, let it wash over you and enjoy it. Yeah. Make your own music. Where was that in the chapter? That was towards the end, it's right? Cause right. he walked, he walks <laughs> out, right? He walks out and presumably that marching band that we saw in Wandering Rocks, like, you know, I, like no two chapters thus far, I think have been so linked than wandering rocks and sirens because think sirens begins with wandering rocks right because with the like once the overture is done right after begin that bronze by gold misduce's head but that's almost a verbatim quote from wandering rocks so we're right back in wandering rocks right so that marching band that we saw in wandering rocks is still playing you know my what is it my my girl's a yorkshire girl so when bloom walks out he's still here in that marching band yeah. It's never said, but you assume that when he's thinking, why is he thinking of a guy hitting a bass drum in a marching band? Because he's hearing it. That's interesting. Uh-huh. So I, I was actually thinking reading this that the this is so highly linked to Cyclops coming. Absolutely. Right? No, no, no. We haven't gotten there, but no, you're I right. Know. But I think, I think you're right. In the second half of this novel, things are going to link up way tighter than they have yeah. been. Well, I, I, don't I know. see your point. I still see a great link between Aeolus and Hades, and then I see a great link between Hades and Lestrigonians. Let's go Gonians. I feel like he's threading these chapters very tightly oh, as sure. we move closer sure. together. I feel like but the tension in the book is tightening. Oh, think of it this way. Right. Between think the right. I think we noticed that with Skill and Charybdis. So, for example, Skill and Charybdis. Joe, you were talking about Skill and Charybdis is kind of like an overture for what's to come. And you really do see in this, for example. So, in Skill and Charybdis, we finally start seeing a narrator that has that kind of ironic distance. Yep. Right? And will play with, like, the narrative colors what the characters are doing in response Naming to it. Naming people or re- right. remixing Here we again. see that in like like this it Tons. comes to you know yep. through, like it's it's in its glory here. And then Wandering Rocks shows us that simultaneous action with the intrusions. Mm-hmm. Right? And you get that here galore. And and it's musical here, right? It's motifs, right? We've got this right. the what is it? The fugue this is a fugue, yeah. right? Everyone talks about this being a fugue. So you've got the subject, right? The subject is a siren song. And then you've got the like the counter subjects, right? And what are the counter subjects? Like like Bloom's monologue is another one. Then you've got the distractions, like the 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 you know, the episodic elements of the fugue, which are what the the Simon's song that he sings and Ben Dollard's song. Right. And then you have the other motifs that come in, Boylan and the blind kid, right? And so you know, we saw that already in Wandering Rocks, but it wasn't for music's sake. It was for the idea of almost like space and time and geography, right? Yeah, I, Whereas here, it's musical. So I think Skill and Charybdis starts preparing us for what's going to happen. Even the narrative voice, like I remember thinking the chapter before, which was Wandering Rocks, how there were these moments where it felt like the narrative voices having a phone call conversation where we are getting only a certain character's perspective and not the entire scene. Here in Sirens, we get a similar situation where Bloom is kind of watching action happening, but he's not seeing the entire story because he kind of, he can't really. 
So the narrative, again, is taking on a similar kind of feel, but only because of Wandering Rocks am I prepared to read this this chapter. Yeah, I think so. Do you know what I'm saying? I think so. Like he's, pre- he's, he's getting more complicated with that narrative voice, and each chapter that comes before prepares you for it. Yeah, I think one, yeah. like the structure of Wandering Rocks is like in a, almost like putting together a big symphony, right, with the big two parts, you know, the father Kami and then the vice-regal procession, so that when we get to this overture on these first two pages it's not as much of a shock as it might be we have had already some it's a shock but it's not you know insane and then once you get through it i don't know i I really think that like once you get through like when you see that done begin and then when you read the whole thing (laughs) you're like all right i get it i see what's happening here okay so let's go back so one more thing that i think is happening with (laughs) one more is his own sexuality and relationship to kind of voyeurism, right? That he wants to be somebody that engages with the world. I mean, including Molly, I think, right? But I think it plays out specifically in the sirens, Mm -hmm. the barmaids, and uh, Martha here. But that it's something that he doesn't want to get too close to for fear of of kind of falling over or maybe losing his love for Molly or becoming a different, whatever his thing is. But still desires, still craves, wants to ex- experience. So I don't know the Odyssean siren. Uh, you know, the Odyssean, the Odysseus from the siren. I think perfectly encapsulates many, many different aspects. Of he wants food. to have his cake and eat it. Right? Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. That, yeah. And then I mean, the, so what's so wonderful about this chapter is the complexity of it. In, not even just in the language of it, but Bloom and his desires, right? Even as he is mourning the fact that Molly is going to cuckold him, or that Boylan is going to cuckold him, right. um, he's still dreaming of giving her presents, mm. right? Like he's yeah. still thinking of those violet petticoats that he can buy with the money he's going to get from those ads, which almost, it's almost like he's paying her for what she's about to do, right? Like there's there's the idea that he knows that he's about to be betrayed, but he's not going to do anything about it. We know later when he's showing Stephen pictures of Molly, that he's probably done that multiple times saying, Hey, check out my wife. Almost like he's a pimp, like he's pimping his wife. Right. I think you get that a little here too. When he's, it's four o'clock. What's he doing here? Like he's almost disappointed that this won't play out. Right. Yeah. Well, I don't know, but it's, it's disappointed is too strong, but I, it's right. No, there's something there. Like he's like, wait, what is he doing here? Like, and, and then he almost says, like, is he trying to, like, tease her? Like, almost as though he's putting himself in Boylan's position. Also, there's, I mean, we've seen masochism in Bloom. Like, yeah. he, you know, this is something that, you know, and others have, have written about, is this possible, like, is this possibly his substitution for the fact that he's a secular Jew? And that he doesn't have the, the like, yeah. Yom Kippur fast or whatnot, like, that he's... This is his kind of, like, atonement, right? Like, self-flagellation, right? I I don't know how much I bind it, but it's... But no, but but, but (laughs) the fact that, like, the fact that he is is divorced from the tradition that could give him a home, the fact that he's divorced, like, Judaism, the fact that he is divorced then also, he's othered from, you know, the Irish, he's othered from his own faith. He's othered from his own physical home. He's othered from his own (laughs) physical home. Othered, can we say that? Is that a real world? Yeah, Whatever, it It sounds too (laughs) jargony. But the idea that maybe this is, this kind of, this is kind of like his way of finding some sort of atonement. Mm -hmm. And then also just the fact that he's, he's humane, like, you know, he, He's not an authoritarian husband, right? Like he's he's not an authoritarian father. 
And if that's what Millie wants to do with the young student, if that's what Molly wants to do, fuck it, I've got my Martha Clifford, like, you know, go along, get along. Like, it's almost like he's this accepted. So, Joe, maybe, I mean, I don't know that this is the, this is where he comes to that decision. I would almost make the point that in Nausicaa, when he's on the beach, yeah. that's where things finally resolve. But maybe this is. But like he's the, still at a distance. Yeah. He's still not engaging uh, with her right, but he's thinking that last half well, of yeah. Go ahead. Hold on. In this chapter, he's thinking about it as well because he makes mention of getting too old and makes mention is it too late? But that's another thing, thinking. though. So I think that's another reason because if he comes on strong and stops this affair, he'll never have a chance of having a kid with Molly, right? Oh, like, yeah, there might why, still wait, be hope why? there. Why? Why is that? Because I mean, that could be like that could be the thing that causes like the ultimate wedge between the two. I think uh, there's still hope there. When he's saying that, I don't think he gives up. Right, I think he's saying like, too old, too old. But you know, but, I get the sense of like, uh, like, like half-hearted optimism. Yeah, maybe yeah. kind of, sort of, perhaps we. I can, think he still sees a future in this, and I think stopping Boylan would interrupt that future. Be, yeah, so so that this you know crisis can be kind of transformed into a reuniting. Yeah, yeah, I think that's and right. buying her the petticoats is almost like a reward for it. If you maybe. Sins of Sweets. Yeah, they're the Sweets of Sweets. Oh, man, that's so great how that's woven in there. And think about it, because that's... So the Petticoats thing comes up right after he said, for Raul, right? He was probably... And then, so Raul equals Boylan. And then he's thinking, I could still buy her those uh, Petticoats. Fuck that. You know? So I I hadn't thought of this before, but I'm thinking about it now. Isn't another kind of um, resistance to the siren paternity, too? Right? Not for Rudy, but for the coming merging with Steven in a way, right? That you can be a father without having the sex or the DNA connections, right? I, I don't know. I'm playing, Steven's only mentioned in here once, right? Yeah, we don't see an appearance from Steven um, at all. He, we hear him. He's, we hear him? Yeah, because, uh, so that's one of those intrusions, right? Where when Bloom thinks of Shakespeare, right? Remember he misquotes when he says music hath charms, which is not Shakespeare, uh, right. it's something he, else. And then he says, oh, quote a day. Because remember, he's got, a, he's got an actual book in his library. To be or not like, to be. Right. He goes, to be or to not to be. Wisdom while you wait. And then suddenly you have something right from Skill and Charybdis, you know, that, that, that you know, Stephen musing on Shakespeare walking. And so it just right. comes right back in there, which makes no sense narrative-wise. That's authorial. It's not that's, really That's authorial. That's yeah. the, uh, you know, whoever the, you know, Hugh Kenner has a whole article on the arranger that starts taking over and invading right. the space. I had a, that's my next question. But the, uh, but no, I, I think you're right. I mean, I think we do see more Stephen-like Bloom comments as we go on. I think that's the case. Uh, the, the, when Shakespeare showed up, I had the same thought about... Stephen kind of incurring into yeah, we've talked about Bloom yeah. as being like an earthier Stephen you know the, the yeah, quote from so. my, whether McCoy or Lenahan whoever says you know there's something of the artist in Bloom is, is probably one of the truest things that's said in this novel Bloom's way cooler than Stephen <laughs> I, think, right? I think Bloom with Stephen is, is the ideal yeah right because I think Stephen there's something very touching about Stephen when we hear him in his own thoughts that's just because we've been with him for so long. I no, think. I think, I think, yeah. nah, I don't know. I'm rooting for Steven. I know, I am too. I, I really like Steven. I want to, but I, 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 we come back time and time again. He just seems so, such like a drag. Yeah. <laughs> but, but don't worry, we don't really have much more of Steven. Yeah, I know. But, but ultimately, um, you know, isn't that a kind of hedging, right? You On know, his part. Uh, the Bloom and Steven kind of, um, 
reuniting, uh, right? It's a kind of hedging. It's a kind of a, a, a pseudo situation, like like Odysseus communing with the the sirens. I'm thinking. I don't. I. I I think right, we're supposed to think that Odysseus is very clever, right, and, and, and very heroic in this moment for wanting to experience. And I think all the Bloom things kind of line up with that. I, I did, when I read that in Homer, I always thought that was Odysseus's selfishness. I thought that was his ego wanting to, you know, um, his gluttony, wanting to experience everything. I don't know, maybe. I don't know. He, he wanted to experience the beauty of the song without feeling the ramifications of it, which was would be catastrophe. Yeah. Right. right? But I think that's also there's there's multiple ways. It's almost like Icarus, like multiple ways to interpret that myth, right? Sure. Like some could see an Icarus, you know, somebody who says, Fuck it, I'm gonna I'm gonna fly to the sun because that's that's the ultimate goal of art, to yeah. at least try to go towards that immortality. Right? Some could say that Odysseus, you know, the appetite for experience yeah. is is what's the ideal versus, you know, you could, like, the argument that you're making that it's, it's absolute hubris, it's arrogance, right? Yeah, or, or, or I think those two are one and the same, this idea that he wants to experience the beauty of things, um, but not necessarily have to, you know, have his downfall because of it, you know? Maybe that's part of that voyeurism thing that you're talking about, this idea that, you know, he wants to share Molly, he wants to watch and partake in it. Maybe there's a, a kind of self-sabotage in that, I don't know. Um, keeping himself at a distance. Well, I, I mean, it's it's non-traditional, but I think we are supposed to view that as healthy. I think I think Joyce wants us to view this as healthy. He, he says so. There's there's a very cryptic passage in Sirens where you have um, Bloom thinking about you know why my you know, husbands don't write right like it says something like that. But then he immediately thinks I think it's this passage where he thinks of Molly and says keeps her young. It's one of these fragmentary thoughts, and you're like, what is he talking about? Is he talking about, like, look, I shouldn't stop this. This is what keeps her young. Because remember, he's looking at one of the barmaids, Miss Deuce. And he says, virgin, probably, or maybe fingered at most. Right, and then yeah, he yeah. says, but, you know, something, like, if not, virgins, they, they, they don't, you know, they, they go, they turn into old maids, right? you got to have that kind of sexual impulse to keep you young. So Molly needs it. I need it. Like, it's, it's basically the idea of an open marriage, right? Like, you know. Accept it, right? Because this is what keeps us young. That was one of the first thoughts he had with Millie from that letter, right? In, mm-hmm. in Bloom's first chapter was like, you know, I can't stop this from happening. Right. Millie's going to, you know, grow up and she's going to have these kind of desires. So, so let's go with your reading and say that Odysseus was being, you know, selfish and egotistical. I think we've seen over and over again that Joyce is reimagining those old traditional, yeah. right, uh, markers of heroism, right? That That the new ironic hero is going to be opposite of that or, or kind of change the dynamics to kind of suit. Yeah, he, he, he's, the, he's the man, the new, the new hero is the man who, who's stuck on the outside and wants to be in but is somehow uh, being okay with it. Can compromise. He can, can compromise. And like a good compromise. Think, this is being written as World War Two and right. it's or World War One rather, and it's horrors are going on. You know, sometimes it's okay to, to, to suffer a slight Rather than start a world war where millions of people are going to die, right? So, so this is you know on a you know micro level, sirens could have ended you know in a cliched way with you know the duel at dawn. Rather, you know Bloom is going to say, you know what, fuck it, you know like just accept it and, and move on in the stream of but life. But in, insouciance and laissez-faire isn't compromise though. 
You know, like, I feel like he's just, like, you're, you're letting go of everything. Because the word compromise was thrown out a few minutes ago, where you're coming to terms with two different things and you're coming down the middle. I think that Bloom is sort of surrendering altogether. You don't you don't view this as sort of, like, you know, giving in to insouciance as, as, as a full-on capitulation? Well, no, it's, I... I well, to start off, I, I don't know that I even agree with this. I'm just okay. suggesting that this is Joyce's read. Right. You know what I mean? You're right. I, I think this seems like, for my personal taste, maybe a bridge too far for how I live my life. But I, I think Joyce, I'm going with Josh. Joyce is trying to reimagine a more peaceful, healthy way to think that stands think in opposition to traditional Victorian we values. that in, in exiles. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> Much the more that yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think compromise, though, is the right word. I, I'll, I'll really support why. the word because I think the idea, remember when he says, you know, sauce for the gander, right? The idea that, look, She's got her thing. I got my thing. Right? Like, like it's not like he's giving up. Like, you know, he's got his little flirtation with with uh, Martha. And, There's and a difference between flirtation I understand and being that, a town but, whore. It seems like everybody's... But, but he is her. sleeping with whores. Right? We find that... We find that at the, remember when he runs into the whore at the end? He's like, oh, fuck. This is the whore that I ran into that knew Molly. And that made it so weird because she's asking me about Molly when we're doing our thing. And... You know, so he's he's clearly doing his business too, and I think that's that's the compromise. Like, look, I do it. Like, isn't that the meaning of like what's good for the goose is good yeah. for the gander, or whatever sauce for the goose sauce? Like the idea, like what's good for her, it's good for me. Like, look, look we're all doing it, you know. Yeah, and, and I was even thinking about compromise a different way. I I like the read that he is still hopeful of a reunite reuniting mm-hmm. with her later, and that this is going to be a compromise <clears throat> towards that ultimate goal. And I was just gonna say there is language in here that is strikingly similar when Molly is thinking of the same things. So you remember the episode, the passage in here where he's remembering when they were at a concert, and there's a guy up on the uh, the balcony who's staring down at Molly's tits with her. Yeah, that sounds terrible, but yeah, that's essentially what he's doing. He's objectifying her, right? He's looking at her with his spyglass, right? And you know, Molly thinks of the same thing later on. Bloom talks about how you can't stop a woman's desires. Might as well try to stop the sea. Yeah. Molly says almost the exact same thing in Penelope. Like there is a connection between the two that is much stronger than like a, a mere affair. Don't ever think that I'm condoning this kind of behavior. I would be a jealous wreck if this were ever happening in my life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it, it is kind of like an idea. Why? Why should no, I be a jealous wreck? You know what I mean? Like it's this is ahead of its time for 2016. Forget. 1904, I think. This is coming in the, in, in the wake of the Victorian era, you know? Yeah. This was the problem in Calypso, the very first chapter that I brought up. I was shocked that there could be such a rift in their marriage, and yet he seemed to be still so loving, still so hopeful, perhaps, mm-hmm. that, that things, you know, he's still kind of fulfilling his duties as a husband without a kind of, uh, you know, any kind of indignance or resentment, at least in that opening chapter, given the rift in their marriage. Maybe that's a foreshadow for the kind of compromise that exists if you truly love someone. You have to perhaps put things aside, but that seems strange to me. I don't want so, to be in that situation. You know, I don't want to be in that situation no, either. That's that, terrible. But, but maybe that's something that Joyce is, is, is starting with. This is a big thing he's doing. He's challenging, you know, basic masculine tendencies yeah. of masculinity. I, but that, I think, I, like, you know, I'm jokingly saying, like, we're all whispering around, like, oh, I don't want to be in that situation. Uh, but you know what? I think that's, that says something about the fact that we are still, yes. we still buy into that's what I'm saying. the idea that, look, why, you know, I mean, I'm not arguing for open marriage, but the, the like, 
there's something in here that rings absolutely right, true. But here's the difference, right? If if you the guy down the street has an open marriage, you don't care. Yeah. Right. But they would a hundred years ago. You know what I mean? I, there is a difference. We yeah. we are far sure. more liberalized today. I'm talking about swinging. I'm talking about swinging. <laughs> keep, keep your damn hands off my wife. <laughs> One of the greatest lines of Lord. <laughs> Raising Arizona. All right. Uh, <laughs> like that. Um, yeah. It's pretty. How about the idea that this book is so progressive that it's even challenging us a hundred yeah, years that's later? What I'm right. I'm challenging literally the, the people sitting here. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. And I think we're we're fairly developed in some ways. And let me tell you. <laughs> let me tell. You, I actually think the younger generation is. Is is getting in tune with this? I mean, I don't think they're they're really? seeing relationships in the same way that, that we. I think we're far more traditional. In a lot of these. Yeah, but they don't see gender mores. You even brought this up. I mean, we might get into a sociology discussion, but you even talked about how they almost don't even seem to uh, see intimacy the same way. No, that's you know, part of my point. That's part of the problem. Yeah, that, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it, sexuality as a kind of bonding mechanism is not the same as it is for somebody that's twenty. As it is for us. I heard 24. younger people aren't even cool anymore. <laughs> younger people are not <laughs> cool. I love that. Get that shit on tape. <laughs> All right. So let's go back to, I don't know, 20 minutes ago. Josh said something about the narrator. And I'm. this is the first time. I mean, I've, I've sensed it a little in other chapters. But this is the first time that I'm like, who the hell is this? Yeah. Like, like right? Because it's, it's definitely beefed up. You know? And it's going to go crazy yeah. next chapter. I get that. But... That's what I think's happening. I think this is this is one, preparing us for Cyclops. But but what, what do you make of it? You well, said one, you one of the best there. articles I ever read on Ulysses is in Hugh Kenner's. I think it's called Ulysses, and it's called The Arranger. And he says that it's actually that name is get, somebody else came up with that name. I can't remember who, but he develops the idea that we really start seeing it overtly. Once sirens begins, we've seen it with wandering rocks. Yeah. We've seen it at Skillacrivis, where we no longer, we really no longer have just a narrator who's just saying Bloom said this, so and so said this. Now we start like somebody, like for example, who is it that in Sirens has, you know, a basically a verbatim quote from the beginning of Calypso, where you know yeah, yeah, Bloom yeah. ate, you know, with relish the inner organs of yeah. animal, like. Clearly, that's 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 not just an narrator saying "bloom this, bloom that." We are supposed to recall the sure. fact, like somebody is outside of the normal job of the narrator. I, right? I think it's skill in Charybdis for me, where the narrative starts to take on its own life. With those dialogue tags, it almost seemed like the narrator was was getting into the fun of the yeah. whole dialectic that was existing mm-hmm. in the chapter. Yeah, I don't think we'd seen that before. Changing Skill the names, no. Changing the names, evolving with the conversation, interacting. The, the jokes of the names interacted with the actual topics that they were discussing, yeah. right? right. And, and so the narrative take on, took on a kind of life of its own. Yeah. And Joyce, Joyce himself, he, he refers to the novel in halves, but it's not chapters one through nine, it's chapters one through ten. He says after, like he, he says after Wandering Rocks, that like that's the first phase. Because look, we see it in Skill and Charybdis, we see it kind of in Wandering Rocks. After like with Sirens and for the rest of the novel, it's it's full bore, mm-hmm. right? You know, yeah. it, like you know, when we get to get to Cyclops, we have a narrator. We have no idea who the narrator even is. Well, and then there's some ideas on that. Yeah, but, we'll but then we get to uh, you know. Oxen of the Sun, we get to... If anything, now Sika is kind of like a step, like Lestragonians, like a step right. back, yeah. right? It's almost we'll like there, that's on I purpose. I totally agree. Yeah. All right, so 
And there's another thing I notice here, right? Like we get um, we get a narrator that is omnipresent too, right? Which we saw a little bit. I mean, we've seen it in other places. Wandering rocks. Wandering rocks, particularly, but there is something I think a little more jarring here because this is so place sensitive. Like the logic of wandering rocks is that we are always moving around. Here, we are very much in this kind of one space, and there's like a set piece. But seeing um, Boylan jingle away and the blinds tuner coming is this like appears to be in the room with us, but we know is outside, right? Yeah. So that's its own kind of like structural editorializing right. that I think goes far beyond what Wandering Rocks yeah. was doing. It's a it's a natural development for Wandering Rocks. I agree. Yeah, it is definitely, uh, yeah, and that, that's what's striking me, right? Right. Yeah. It's almost like in each chapter, he's building a crazy notion on an older idea and, and putting a new crazy notion in to set you up and kind of prepare you for the next crazy right, idea. That's why I think the, the overture at the very beginning is not as... It's surprising, but it's we've almost been prepared for that, something like this coming. Yeah, yeah for example, Aeolus. The interjections of the titles, um, the subtitles within the, the chapter, the headlines. the headlines. That's preparing me... For that narrator in Skill and Charybdis that starts interjecting and evolving with the dialogue. Because acts. it's a kind of editorializing voice. I it's an editorializing voice, and it's a voice that's coming from outside the text, right? It, it, it's essentially our narrative voice. And, it, and it's interjection, interjecting and evolving and playing with things. And now that I think about it, it has that same kind of humor. What was the, what was the, the joke where, where it came in an acronym? Uh, A-E. Yeah. I-O-U. <laughs> right. You know, um, and then, you know, the whole, the whole joking of those headlines and the playfulness and skill of Charybdis. I, I think definitely Joyce is, is carefully preparing us as we get to each next chapter so that we receive it. Um, still, with that like said... A, like a scaffolding. Without yeah. a doubt. Scaffolding. Didactic. Yeah. With, that, yeah. with that said, yeah, it keeps right. getting more and more complex, though. You know, so each chapter does still present its own challenges. But always... So, one of you had said earlier that in this chapter, it's almost like the words mean less than kind of like how they sound. I don't know that I agree with that. I feel like in this chapter... It's always in service to the narrative. Like you always do, yeah. you always have the narrative. It's not like, oh, that was just said for the sake of saying it. Like there, there is no, a narrative there. But, but sound quality doesn't have to be kind of, kind of defined by, by some kind of prescriptive meaning. Sure, but the meaning is always there. That's what I think is so great. Sure. Otherwise, you could just have a bunch of pretty sounding words. But so, for example, but meaning when evolves you, though. Right? When you have like Miss Kennedy sauntered sadly from bright light, twining a loose hair behind an ear, sauntering sadly, gold no more. She twisted twined a hair, sadly she twined in sauntering gold hair behind a curving ear. Right? You could say, okay, that's just repetition and playfulness for the sake of sounding musical. Yes, on one level. But it also almost shows just kind of that incessant nature of trying to look beautiful. It demonstrates and, who she is. Right. And I, so, I agree with you. Yeah. I'm just saying that it's, it's non-traditional. It's a new way to achieve that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Right. Yes, I and, agree and, 100%. And that comes with, right, and any translator of poetry is always kind of struggling with the idea of, do I serve the, the narrative and the kind of uh, concrete nature of the text, or do I serve the sound quality and the rhythms yes. and the musicality? Joyce, I think, is saying, now you do both together. Right, right. Yes. You know, you picked out a good uh, yeah. part. I mean, I thought that, that worked beautifully. Good. It sounds beautiful, and you, yeah. you're getting an imagery of it, and it tells you something about her. I think there are some dialogue tags yes. 
that are that kind of. Do you have an example? Well, in your no, head? But, but if I, I can, can, I can't. If I can interrupt though, but I, I think there are moments in the text where if you are not reading it aloud to yourself, if you are not allowing the music of the language to take over, you might never reach the meaning. Because yeah. he's kind of creating new meanings out of you words You have to read aloud. You have to, I mean, he, Joyce himself would say that of his own work. Fitting in's wake only works if read aloud. Well, that's the thing. Like you have to read aloud. That's you what I mean. That's what I meant by it almost seems like Joyce is putting more, um, I don't want to say emphasis, I don't want to say stock. He, he, he cares about the music and the sound kind of leading us toward meaning at times. Um, perhaps more than many writers. Right, but never divorced of no, meaning. That's, no. that's the only Gr- point that Great I artists would never be divorced right. from meaning. Great artists will always have a sort of connectivity between form and content, without a doubt. And, and, and certainly he's not just throwing stuff in for the sake of musicality, by no means. But he is putting music and sound at the forefront, and, and because of that, that's what makes reading it, I think, complicated. Yeah. You know, I would say that's what makes reading it a delight. That's what sure, like I agree. reading this like this. You know, if ever I wanted to make an argument for the beauty of the English language, I would say you know read read sirens aloud. Like that's yeah. that's gorgeous. Oh yeah, and yeah. fun and yeah. funny and you know like and tragic. Like it's it's the best of opera, right? But not obvious in terms of creating meanings, right? You have to dig a little. Right, but yeah. I mean, I want to dig a little. Like, oh, yeah, I, you know what I mean? Like, like, why are we doing this, right? You ain't, like, you ain't no average reader. I was going to say that. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I, I really... I, I, we're ganging up by Josh. Okay, so the... I, I, wanted, I have a lot of questions, just practical questions as we kind of go through, but let's start with our sirens here, right? I don't really know what Blonde by Gold is kind of doing, except for just kind of general descriptive principles right to give them that kind of sheen quality alluring and make it alluring right but is there something i'm missing beyond that i just say like everybody has multiple names in the chapter whether it's pat and like you you keep rephrasing what he is and who he is or them and i think it just adds to it because they even go even goes with their first name at one point yeah mina mina and lydia so you're 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 running minor and lydian you know it's musical too you know, even like Big Ben, Ben Big, you know, like, yeah. he, so he'll play with that. So I, I just thought it was playing into that. But also bronze yeah. and gold yeah. are and the it's two. It's imagery, I get it. Right. And, 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 you want, you, and if they are playing the role or, or standing in for the traditional siren, you need something that makes them alluring. And, and that would be fetching the idea of bronze and, and gold. I don't yeah. know. But it's also yeah. the two primary metals of Homer. That's true. Right? I mean, yeah, like those are like, that, they're also yes. like, you don't have iron, you got yeah. bronze, you got gold. Like that's. So I think it's the allure. I think it's all of that. They glitter, you know, and you they lure like they glitter on top. But then when you see they're they're sitting on crates and whatnot, you know, you see the the reality of uh, you know when Bloom's looking at Lydia Deuce. Remember, he's seeing he's he finds her alluring, especially as she's stroking the beer pole, right? And then uh, he th- he says, yeah, but what what Lidwell can't see are the popped corks. Look at all the beer spills. Look at all the empty bottles. Like he recognizes her for being a siren, yeah. and he's going to escape that. Whereas Lidwell is like stuck there. He's is, he's on the rocks. Isn't that also Simon Daedalus when he's singing? You know this idea that he's he's got this kind of beautiful sound coming from him, and yet who's it coming from? Somebody who uh, you know can't even support his own family. See, that's an interesting thing, right? The fact that this all the yeah. singing is done by the men. Yeah. Right? I mean, she, yeah, you've got Lydia Deuce singing the I don't know, yeah, right? Funny. But uh, yeah, the real singers are the men in this, and, which is an interesting idea, right? And they're usually characterized as shrieking, being shrill, 
right? The women. They're gossipy. Yeah. They right. They laugh. It, it seems unflattering. Yeah. You know, oh, I love that, that passage with the laughter is yeah. one of my favorite passages in the whole book. Oh yeah, yeah, I love that. So by <laughs> the way, am I reading right? They're talking about Bloom. No, they're not talking. No, about they're, not, they're talking about the old. Out no, they're talking about the old fogey and the pharmacist who. But, that, oh, I'm sorry. Go, go ahead. ahead. No, I'm saying, but it's meant to give you the impression because right. I love Bloom too. No, 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 because it's, Bloom. No, it's 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 no. I mean, I, I at least I I would never have thought that in a million years. But I think the narrator, whoever that arranger is, right. By juxtaposing when they're laughing right. and then putting to Bloom, right. we look at Bloom as a figure of fun. But no, there it Could, starts with them because remember she talks about the old fogey that was giving her when she went into the pharmacist to get the stuff for her sunburn. That's right. what they're thinking of. But then we think of like, oh, well, how do people see Bloom? Right? It's like a counter subject. Yeah. Could well, Bloom be thinking that? That they're laughing at him? No, no, no. 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 I think it's because Bloom's, Bloom's getting a stationary. Like, right. I don't even think yeah. Bloom's at this stationary place. Right. But I think w- that's that's the like the beauty of music. We're putting it together, so already we're thinking of Bloom as a figure of fun, possibly. Yeah. Well, later right. on, I mean, Bloom does overhear people talking about him at the bar, right? I don't know if he overhears. Over I, I don't know he if doesn't he overhears. Overhear. But we actually, we hear Simon and... Right, they're talking uh, about Dollar. Molly and the, how when they were right. poor, when they were like, I guess Bloom was out of work, they used to sell secondhand clothes. Yeah. Because like, when I read through this, you know, I was thinking, like, it, it doesn't seem like they're talking about Bloom. It doesn't match up. But then when I read that later, it sounded like a nice parallel to that. And I thought, oh, maybe that is the It case. is a parallel, but I don't think they're actually right. talking about Bloom. No, no, I, I think you're right. Yeah, I don't think they are. But um, First of all, he's not an old man. He's 38 years old, right? Like, he's not, like, this guy's an old fogey yeah. that they're talking about, you know. Bloom's 38? Yeah. Yeah, we find out. <laughs> you like that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The um so, in a solipsistic kind of way. Yeah. I wonder why. They uh, no, but, but they're they're gossip, right? They're right I think they're that's a reversal, right? That they're supposed to look unflattering and I'm not sure why that is. I mean, so I think one huge thing I know, like everything is hearing and seeing, seeing and hearing, right? Those ideas are kind of being played with. Shells become ears and, mm-hmm. you know, all of this. And, I, right, I think it was maybe Elman was talking about the kind of uh, gender, you know, symbolism of that, that hearing is, is particularly feminine, seeing is particularly masculine. Mm-hmm. So the idea of them... I think maybe, maybe looking good and not sounding good. I think maybe speaks to those those kind of thematic concerns. I don't know. Oh, I mean that's the idea of a siren. I mean, although it's kind of reverse, but the idea that it lures you with what you think is beautiful, and right. then ultimately there's something hideous and destructive. Well, the siren doesn't look great. Well, she does from under, the waist up, the, right? right? She does from when the waist up when you get up. close and you can actually see. But yeah. the sound is always. Beautiful. That's what I mean, how it's kind of, it's reversed. Yeah, I think... But it's still the same idea, that you're lured by something that looks beautiful or seems beautiful. Looks is the, you know, that's the reversal there, the sense. So I'm still digging. What does that say about maybe Dublin men? Right? Isn't isn't that maybe the next logical step to take, that they have siren-like qualities, that they're full of kind of things that sound great? Yeah. Luster in songs, but... Really, underneath, they're kind of shitty. Where, Isn't that really Simon Daedalus? Where do they get stuck? Think, they all get stuck in the taverns. What are they doing? They're singing to each other. Right. And, right. and while they're doing that, they're leading Tell to their own destruction. They're telling stories. stories. So they're like sirens to themselves. Exactly. Right? And because, each other. 
Right, that's exactly, what I mean, to each other. Because think of it, like the, text the, is. The, the idea that they're still singing cool. the crappie boy in 1904, like Bloom even makes a comment, right? Because right? the saying of that rebellion of 1798 is, you know, who fears to speak of 98? Yeah, Bloom says, who speaks, who fears to speak of 1904, right? Why are we talking about now? And, right? and, and that's where I, in the beginning, I really feel like, that's the siren call. It's it's to, to sentimentality. Yeah. It's to nostalgia. Yeah. And, and and Bloom is is repudiating that. Yeah. He's breaking mm-hmm. away from it, and, and that's what he does by walking out of it. Or yeah. not being lured by it. Or or, or maybe he's well, disassociated he, with it, right? Or he or he comes to an understanding of what music is. And, and I'm always I, I always like try to cross check and see what Joyce is sort of what he's communicating uh, with Aristotle at different points and. For Aristotle, what was music? It, it's it's a form of entertainment. You sort of should take it as it is, um, and I think that's that's what Bloom sort of boils it down to. And it shouldn't be something that sort of takes you over and sort of sucks you into the into the vortex of just sort of you know everybody sitting around talking about the past. Right. Yeah. It's the idea of keeping moving. Yeah. Constantly keeping yeah, moving. Like, like, Bloom is also like I want to make a list of all of Bloom's ideas, right? All of his inventions, <laughs> yeah. right? Like memories. He starts thinking about the the pianos. Like yeah, music is nice to hear, but oh man, scales. Like why can't they make? I guess it ought to be an invention. They should make a dummy piano for people to practice on, right? Yeah, and I just he's so, he's moving. Like Odysseus, he, Odysseus survives because he keeps moving. Yeah, right. He moves past in the fact, when they're stuck in the land of the lotus eaters, it's Odysseus who wants to get all their asses off the ground, right? Mm-hmm. Going yeah. back to Homer. He fights stasis. Yeah. Exactly. And by the way, stasis is yet another idea for paralysis, which yes. is something yes. we talked is, about, right? We've, we've gone through that, you know, repeatedly. Since yeah. Yeah. Bloom crosses the bridge of Yesses, <clears throat> as opposed to Essex. Right now, it's just something that caught my eye right now as you're saying that, right? Yeah. That, you know, and this, I think, ties into all those other things, right? Yes, sex is a kind of what we would call now a sex-positive point of view. Or right. And look like at the that. next word. I, I, I'm not on the page, but isn't the next word Martha? Don't yeah. even start. Uh, right, you to Martha. It. I must write. Yeah. Buy paper. Kelly's. <laughs> that's awesome. Girls there, civil. Bloom. Old Bloom. Blue Bloom is on the rye. Yeah, and, that's and light hands about, uh, yeah. quip. And how about Bloom being Jewish, right? Constantly on the move. They've been people... Wandering. Constantly displaced and wandering and always... Never stasis. But doesn't, and that's been doesn't survival. that speak exactly to changing his point of view about his wife's infidelity? That's the point. That he's saying, yes, sex, right? Rather than get bogged down and, and beaten by the concept of old traditional right, so maybe, maybe you the, move past maybe He's real because he struggles with it. Sorry. Maybe so what we've seen in the past, because in Lotus Eaters, the, the response was forgetfulness. Just kind of blotted out of your mind. Les Dragonians was he was really thinking of it, and there was there's real sadness there in yeah. Les Dragonians, yeah. right? It was eating him up like on the inside, right? And he had that that just that incredibly rapturous rapturous memory of being on Ben Ho- Ben Hoth, I think is how you pronounce it, right? With the rhododendrons and they're kissing, and he's eating what she's eating yeah. and whatnot, and. And yet there was that just awful sadness then right afterwards, right? That was me then, me now. And so maybe you're right. Maybe here is the point because this is, I really think Sirens is the fulcrum around this in, the, the entire novel. He crosses the bridge. It's, it's, crosses the bridge, yeah. But I mean, and, and let's, let's and, just oh, say. Oh, also, wait, one more yeah. thing. Like, look at those words. Like, what is the one word you remember from Ulysses? Yes, yes, right? Oh, yeah, you're on, really, right. you're seeing it it's here. On right. It's on the cover. <laughs> it's on your cover. It's on the cover. The... the <laughs> That's my curious thought. Um, I don't know. We're well, just, well, just well, I, yes I, I, I liked Lestragonians was so important to me because it set oh. Bloom apart from 
the masculinity we were talking about before, the masculinity of ancient mythology. The devouring male. The devouring male. The idea that you have to consume. If you're angry, you consume. And he was not doing that. I love that chapter so much because Bloom is real. And to me, he's been real because he's been struggling with this. This isn't a guy who's just, you know, taking this compromise. You brought this up before. That was a point I I was going to make. That, that, you know, let's say that he's inconsistent. Right? Walt Whitman said it, you know? Then be inconsistent because that's what we are. We're all inconsistent, right? One moment I could feel horribly tragic about one thing and elated about it in the next moment because because of the plasticity of humanity, right? Yeah. I mean, I think if Joyce is going to give us a ultra-realistic view of what the human mind is, which I think this book is, is its greatest achievement is... In existential crisis. It has to be inconsistent, Yeah. right? Particularly a guy that is fighting the stasis you're talking about. Yeah. It's all coming together. God, it is cool. We've licked it. <laughs> can we stop reading? If you look, you don't have to do anything. You no, don't I'm just want kidding. To do, it's man. a joke. I can't. Best kid, I kid. <laughs> oh, so these sirens, huh? Um, <laughs> so I, I think there's other sirens too. I like I like the little um, the little the shop girl that Bloom deals with as a little bit of a siren, and uh, I'm not on it, but you know. He doesn't know if she's flirting with him or not, and then kind of dismisses it. Um, there's plenty of sirens. There's, yeah, the, there's the mermaid poster of the cigarettes. Sirens. There's the Virgin Mary, right? Like you know, when Bloom's passing by the statues, and he, he talks about how, oh, you know, makes them all want to, you know, come there, you know, pulls them all in. He's probably thinking back to Lotus Eaters and the, the communion. Yeah, where was there another part in the text where he turned Mary into a different image of something? Do you remember? Yeah. Mary, the image of Mary turned into... Uh, a uh, bird on the ocean. No, <laughs> shit, man. Uh, I can't remember it. It was a bunch of chapters ago. Um, <clears throat> all right, what else? What, what, uh, what are we interested in here? Uh, you know what might be a nice approach? Let's start going like page by page. Well, no, but like, don't you, like, what are some favorite passages? Like, what are some, like... Yeah, I mean, we've covered like kind of the big, the big picture. I think. Yeah, um, I like Lenahan coming back. <laughs> I like how Lenahan. I like that one, uh, that one word, off? that one word sentence. No, but he's 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 very excited when he watches a misdue stretchy. Yeah. I like the one word sentence on page two sixty two. Dry. Right. What's Lenahan? <laughs> what's Lenahan well, trying to do? He's trying to get yeah. Simon to buy him a drink, and Simon ain't budging. Right. Like when he's like. You know, I saw your son, but right. he doesn't say it that way. You know, he says, greetings from the famous son of a famous father, right? And Simon's like, <laughs> Simon never recognizes right. Stephen, ever. Well, you know, who may he be? It's funny, right? Lenahan's going to use his best strategy, right? Oh, if I, t- if I tell a father how great his son yeah. is, certainly that's going to yeah. get me a beer. backfires. He's, he's dealing with the wrong person. He's absolutely the wrong person. <laughs> Yeah, the, I also the, like that the the only man that uh, the sirens do not try to ensnare is Lenin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no interest in him whatsoever. <laughs> um, I mean, we can assume that, right? They're, I mean, on a practical level, they're trying to get tips, right? I think it still works in Dublin a hundred right. years ago, like it works. But Lenahan has anyway. nothing to tip with. Yeah, no, of course. Um, yeah, that's that's uh, that's pretty good. His, uh, I, I love the Boylan stuff, right? The um, I mean, you know, beyond the jingle, jingle and all that, just his uh, quick appearance. And he is the, the conqueror, right? And the next sentence down. Unconquered hero. Yeah, uh, Bloom is the unconquered well, hero. I like that you get, like, a, a little snippet 
of Blaze's like every other page. Yeah. <laughs> and and each one is more ridiculous than the other. Yeah. Right? Until you. Well, where does it leave off? Does it leave off with him like getting to the house? I it, think? It, does. it does. It's where yeah. his socks touch the touch, earth. That's, touch, okay, that's it. Yeah. And then you have the every time he knocks, it's like a rooster, like a cock, like a car, right? Well, yeah, that's <laughs> that's amazing. Um, and that becomes its own. What is it? Where is it the passage that is really just like a bunch of cocks over and over again? Yeah. Right. Yeah. I know. I can't find anything because it's also kind of jangled up. Jingle, um, jingle, jangled. Yeah, jingle, jangled. I, I don't know. Oh, I got, I got it. It's on 282 at the bottom. Yeah, it's pretty funny. One rapped on a door, one tapped with a knock. Did he knock Paul de Cock with a loud, so, proud knocker with a cock? Kara, 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 cock? Cock, cock? How about that? The fact that Boylan is such a cliche of a romance novel that he actually becomes the author of a romance yeah. novel. I love that. <laughs> yeah, that's right? Paul the Cock is, we meet him right. in Calypso, right? He's the author. Remember, Molly says, nice name he has. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right? So yeah, yeah. He's a real guy, right? Right, he's, he's a real, real guy, guy. So, But I, just just to, to demonstrate something, Dave just read that passage so much more rhythmically than that sound recording did. Yeah. You know what I mean? I disagree. Dave did a very nice... <laughs> oh, hey, hey, hey. I think Dave did a very Shit, nice man. rendition, but I, I really think they did a wonderful can I, job. Can I try it again? No, Dave, you did a nice Shit. job. It just wasn't as good as the one from 82. <laughs> no, I, Joe, I, I disagree. I, I know what you mean. Like, So when you read this, like it's like everything sounds like music. And yeah. I think you, you are going to lose that in a recording of it, but I think that was a choice they had to make. Because I want Dave to be uh, the boys' boy in my room. Oh, hey, hey! Here's the thing, right? I mean, just just take just take the interjections of the tap 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 that come up, and they come up larger and larger. We know what it means. We know that it's it's Blaze's boiler knocking on the door. It's but the, the, no. it's the blind guy tapping. Oh, it's the blind guy tapping. But coming towards Blazes. the. Got it. But for me, it was also kind of bringing me toward. It, it was it was bringing me on a on a meaning level toward Blazes Boylan arriving at Molly's house. Right, they're like simultaneous. They're they're simultaneous themes in the fugue. Exactly, right? and 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 I think that you get lost in the music, the music, and and the idea that the intensity is increasing and that it, it keeps repeating is bringing us into places in our minds and and the meaning of things that perhaps you wouldn't get with just the meaning of the word tap. Right, that it's actually the music. That, that is driving meaning for Joyce more than perhaps I've seen yet, you know, in the text, or maybe it's evolving more. But it always means something. That's the only, I just want to make sure that point is made that, right, like it's never just for the sake of sounding musical, right? No. There's always, like, there's always something solid. What I'm these. saying is that he's using sounds to create new meanings. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm trying to suggest. I'm trying to suggest that he. By giving sound and music the forefront, he's creating new meanings out of those sounds that we wouldn't have played with, which is why you can get lost in the text unless you actually allow the music and you hear the music to kind of take you over. You wouldn't know what some of these things mean, uh, some of the kind of, you know, bloom who and things like that, unless you actually allow that the sounds of the language to actually take over. And plus, we haven't even talked about the fact that Joyce is imitating actual musical structures, yeah, right? Yeah, like, yeah. for example, I don't know. I just happen to be on page 286, and so if you look on 286, uh, like, one of the last paragraphs, well, I must be. Are you off? You must be blooms up, right? So that supposedly is trying to imitate the idea of a hollow fifth, mm. right, in intervals, right, where you hear, you hear 
one interval, you hear another interval played together, and your mind creates the, the note that's missing there, yeah. right? So Bloom stood up, like you can guess from that that it means Bloom stood up, and just in case he didn't, then you get the Bloom stood up. So some of those like truncated words are actually him trying to mimic musical techniques yeah. in them, but they always mean something. Well, here's right? the it's, thing. He, he was doing this in the previous chapter in Wandering Rocks. He was creating a narrative in which he was leaving out the other person talking, right? You, you had only the father talking in the opening. Father Cowley, was it, in the opening of Wandering Rocks? Who's Calmly. the father? Calmly. And, he, and you don't have the other person he's responding to, but yet you know the entire conversation. You're filling the gaps in in your imagination mm. because you know how that would work in much the same way that he's doing it with words or with sounds at this moment in the text. Well, you know, that, that becomes a, an actual plot point here, too, as Simon sings, Bloom... Boom's mind changes along with the lyrics, right? right? I right. It's like two seventy three all the way till we get to Cypold, uh, Cypo, uh, right? Cypold, because you have Simon, Lionel, and Leopold, right. right? You well, you you ultimately have a. I think that's like a fugue structure, right? You know the 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 song of Simon out there, Bloom's um, thoughts that kind of correspond to it. And then ultimately, like a kind of a collapsing of them. Right? right. Well, and also Lionel. Yeah. The, the, the actual person, right. the character in Martha, yeah. right? The yeah. music transforming the ideas. Yeah. Right. But it's, and it's also a chord, right? And one could also it's say. It's a chord, right? right? Exactly. Exactly. You, you're, you've got three notes there. You've got Simon, you've got the character that Simon is singing, and then you've got Leopold. And then it's also like an, it's like like an ego death, if you will, right? Like, what does music do? Like, music can, if you really succumb to it, it just basically like it's it's a way of communing with everyone around you, yeah. And you lose kind of all sense of your own idea, the idea or identity rather, and you have that ending. To me, sciapold, consumed, come, right? And it's like all, and then look at the pronouns, you know, come, well sung, all clap, she ought to come to me, to him. To her, you too. I read that like that's Joy sticking his finger out of me, like you, me, me yeah, too, yeah, yeah. me, well, us. Like it's it's totally like basically it's a oneness, right? Like it's yeah. like a almost like a collective orgasm at the end of a song. That's what music can do. Bravo, clap, clap. Right? <laughs> if you look at Homer, right in the Odyssey, music can be so alluring that you could actually forget your own survival, right? Odysseus was told. That the music would lead to his destruction. He knew that. Mm-hmm. And, and everybody around him potentially knew that. Maybe not directly, but perhaps indirectly. And yet music can be that alluring that you can even forget your own, you know, your own survival. Whether it be physical or for Bloom, it becomes a mental thing. If he goes in on that scene, if he starts communing in the sentimentality of things, he, doesn't, he, he falls victim to the very thing in his life that he's trying to get past. He'll, he would, he'll be singing songs about that. He'll be singing songs about his unfaithful yeah. wife, yeah. Yeah. right? Yeah. Um, in that passage, right, with, with uh, Simon singing, right, I, I love how the things start overlap as they get deeper, right? You get um, Simon sings, but alas, twas idle dreaming. Then we have a whole kind of thought from Bloom, ray of hope. The next word, I assume, is beaming in the song, but it's picked up by Bloom, top of 275, right? He says that that leads to his point of view, right? Right, because Being when Lydia he's looking at Lydia Lidwell, and Lidwell, yeah. Right? Yeah. So, so that, right, I imagine because it rhymes with dreaming, that's the next lyric. I didn't look up the, the song, you know, and, and get the lyrics, but that makes sense, right? It, it's about, it's always about this communing. It's about um, coming together and 
understanding each other. Song is a way to do that. Yeah. And, uh, and also, I mean, if you're sitting there listening to a song, it will color your thoughts, which is, you know, that's the kind right, of exactly. real, like, like the earthy way of interpreting it. Here's one of my favorite passages that goes along with what you two guys are saying. On two, bottom of 273 into 274, right before that. Through the hush of air, a voice sang to them, Lo, not rain, not leaves and murmur, like no voice of strings or reeds, or what do you call them, dulcimers, touching their still ears with words, still hearts of their each his remembered lives. Good, good to hear. Sorrow from time, each seemed to from both depart when first they heard, when first they saw, lost Richie. Poldy, mercy of beauty, heard from a person, wouldn't expect it in the least. Her first merciful, love-soft, oft-loved word. That's probably the best example, though, of how the song lyrics change the thought pattern, right? Because that's a perfect blend. There's song lyrics in there from what's actually being sung. It's how they're being how they're being heard by them, and then Richie becomes a character in it. Poldy becomes a character in it, right? and you reorder them, and the yeah. sounds take a new shape, and all of a sudden it creates new ideas. Yeah, and then we're in, we're totally in Bloom's head too, because right, the what do you call them dulcimers? That's from page fifty seven when he's having his visions of the East, right? And he's trying to remember like what was that instrument, and he actually says, "What do you call them dulcimers?" Mm. Like there's that arranger again there putting in those thoughts from another chapter. Yeah, yeah Dave, I've got that circled, and I even have a note here. Of favorite passage yeah. I think that's one of the greatest descriptions of what music can do right there like even that idea like a person wouldn't even you know wouldn't expect it in the least which is clearly an idea from the song that Martha would come back to them but also the idea of what music can do you're listening to it and you're suddenly brought to a place without having control over it yeah well it, it starts to make his thinking more musical too mm-hmm. right I mean the passage Dave just read is beautiful but it still sounds a lot like the kind of bloomium narration sure. that we've heard. Mm-hmm. Go to the bottom of that page, though, right? Um, words, music, no, it's what's behind. Bloom, looped, unlooped, no, uh, noted, disnoted. I think this is him still, right? Yeah, this is that's him. him with the string. Yeah. Bloom, flood of warm, gym gem, lick it up, secretness, flow to flow, and music out in desire, dark to lick, flow, invading. This is... This is him becoming musical in his thought, yeah. right? It, this is not typical of the Bloomium narration we're, we're used to. Well, it's giving into his thoughts are like, like, like the obliteration of it, like an orgasm, yeah. right? Yeah, like right. It's, it's like this is the danger of what music can do. Tup pours the dilated, dilating tup. The joy, the feel, the warm, the tup. To pour or sluices, pouring gushes. Uh, flood, gush, flow, joy gush. Uh, tup throp. Hmm. Now... Language of love, yes. ray of hope yeah. beaming, right? He's he's falling into it, yeah. right? He's becoming musical as the music of I love the all the variations, tipping or tupping or yeah. tapping or topping or these are all apparently var- variants for copulating like animals. Well, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean that comes up in Othello, it's right? They talked right? about topping. And the, then uh, also the, the, white, what's the co- old white ram that tupped. tupped his white you. The old, the old black Is it all having to do with like top, like being on top? Yeah, like top. being on top. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then how about on the bottom of 275, where we're, like, where, did, where have we heard this before? So this is Bloom hearing this, and okay. this is the language in which he describes, you know, Simon's, you know, high treble notes. It soared, a bird, it held its flight, a swift pure cry, soar, silver orb, it leaped serene, yeah. speeding, sustained, to come, don't spin it out too long, uh, breath, heat breath, long life, soaring high, high resplendent. 
resplendent, aflame, crowned, high in the effulgence, symbolistic, high of the ethereal bosom, high of the high, vast irradiation, everywhere, all soaring, all around, about the all, the endlessnessnessnessnessness. That's Bloom remembering Dan Dawson's speech from Eolus. It's like coloring his thoughts, and he's using the words that were already in is his that head. Right? Oh, yeah, because yeah. <laughs> some of that language is right from what they were making fun of in Eolus. I thought it sounded Stephen-like, but I that makes sense. No, it's, I think it's Bloom working with what he's got. These are thoughts that he's probably not even aware of, and as he's thinking of the sound, like Dan Dawson is coming into his head without even realizing it. <laughs> yeah, that yeah, yeah. that actually is kind of adds a little bit of irony and buffoonery to it in a oh, little bit, no, right? I, yeah. yeah, sure. Well, I think there's some... Like I playfulness, think, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, and I love that, you know, to me, Seopold, right? Yeah. right? It's almost like responding, right? Yeah. Who is me now? In that moment, you are your... A multiplicity. Yeah, because yeah. think, I mean, Bloom, Bloom, has, Bloom has already been singing Martha in his head, in Eolus, yep. this very song. That's why he's like, oh my God, Martha? It's not just that he's writing a note to his Martha Clifford. He himself has already been thinking it. Remember that, that part, like, come, oh lost one, come, oh dear. He was singing that in Eolus. That's like the climax of this song. And so now Simon is actually singing that very song. Yeah. He's already seen himself in that. So what, what do you make of the passage that comes right before that? And the, the me, the two me actually made me think of it. Um, the one, uh, I'm on top of three, uh, 273, um, a little ways down. He knows it ends, uh, he knows it well too, or he feels still harping on his daughter. Wise child that knows her father, Daedalus said, me? Right? That questioning me at the end. So I mean, this is references to... Othello. Um, yeah, well... There's some of that, but page it, eighty-five. It's right? that's Hades. In, it's Hades, right? Um, it's, and it's, it's actually Proteus, because remember Stephen when he's thinking, when he's imitating mm-hmm. his father, says the same. He puts those words in Simon's Why mouth. Why child knows his father? And then Simon actually says it in eighty-five in Hades. And well, now, what's the me? That's the question. I think I he's thinking of Millie. Yeah, I think he's I thinking of Millie. Way. Millie's on his mind oh. too, right? Millie's been on his mind for all day, and then he thinks about Millie and the young student later on. You know, I think he's comparing himself. Like, does the, Millie know me? Is that maybe, the or do I know Millie? Like, do, like I like his memories. Then he's thinking about God. How does Millie have such bad taste? Like, we're you know we're so similar in so many ways, but she like when, when it comes to music, we're so different. I was trying to connect him to Daedalus. Daedalus said, "Me, right? That are they similar?" I don't know. I think you're right. I, I think, think it might be well, the daughter. Well, as an Othello reference, right? That's the senator that's worried about Desdemona running off with Othello. Right, he can't believe that his daughter is so free spirited yeah. that she has that. So that would fit uh, for Bloom and, and Millie that kind of conflict. Mm. But 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 could the me be like you know is this something that actually like is he is he addressing that this could this be something that happens to him like this happens in general but could this be what I'm experiencing yeah. with Millie I don't know I don't know. So moving along, we have the um, the Martha letter. Right, mm-hmm. and am I reading this right? Right, this is where we get, get the. Page. Oh, I don't know. What is it? It's oh, like two seventy nine. Two seventy. Yeah, two seventy nine into two eighty. You get this kind of like the the words cut off is is big here, right? In that middle paragraph, particularly, this is him kind of writing fast, yeah. right? But I think he's like so, yeah. yeah. But so, like so blue that, mer, presumably blue murmured. 
Right. Right. He didn't want Goulding to see what he was writing yeah. either. So right. I thought he was writing like half coded in a way. But how can she read that? I know. I, I thought I think I, he's writing full no, words. He's, he's writing full words. But I think the idea so is that. So in his head, he, I think, just getting And his then head. also, I think we're also getting. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> Sometimes it happens. Yeah. I think we're also getting an idea that Richie can't quite make it out what's happening there. Yeah. yeah. I, I thought, I mean, could he just be scratching down some ideas that he'll eventually go back to? Yeah, I couldn't. No, he wrote the letter because he's going he's gonna to deliver it, I think. Yeah, he, he puts an envelope, does the whole thing. That's what was kind of confusing me. So it also has some uh, musical resonance, I imagine, too, right? This kind of, uh, I don't know, staccato kind of kind of sound quality to the words. I was trying to put that together. Maybe this has something to do with his mindset, the kind of hitting qualities, you know. Remember, he, he, he reproaches himself after he's written his PS where he says, feel so sad, so lonely. He says, why did I write yeah. that? You know, it's the mm-hmm. music, the florid music made me write that. I like the idea that uh, as he's uh, murmuring out, he's looking at the, uh, you know, He's looking at the newspaper for ideas, like, oh, just copy out of the paper. And Messrs. Uh, Callan, Coleman, those are the people that died along in the obituaries, right? That's the fake address that he's supposedly yeah, writing for Richie yeah. to see. And then, of course, that puts the idea in his head. I love Bloom's thought process, like this bit right here on page 280, right in the middle, where he says, blot over the other so he can't read. Right. Idea. Price tidbit. Something detective read off blotting pad. Right. Payment at a rate of guinea per call. Matcham often thinks the laughing witch, poor Mrs. Purefoy, UP, up. In that little snippet, right. right, we've got Calypso, Bloom on the Pot, reading the paper. Yeah. Oh my God, this guy made a, you know, a couple guineas for writing this, uh, <laughs> writing this little thing. And then he thinks of how when he was talking to Mrs. Breen in Lestragonians, right, he thinks, oh, how's Miss Bufoy doing? He got the name wrong because he was thinking of the author of this guy. And she says, oh, you mean Miss Purefoy? Oh, that's right, Purefoy. Then back to Breen, and what was it that she showed him? The postcard that Dennis received that said UP up. All in that little snippet, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's good. All right, so what are we supposed to make of the, the blind tapping? Oh, wait, wait, one second oh, okay. before we yeah, go there. Sure. Uh, remember you were asking, where's Stephen? That's it right there on page 280, right? Too poetical about that sad. Yeah, Music did that. Music hath charm. Shakespeare said, quotations every day of the year, to be or not to be, wisdom while you wait. And then... In Gerald's Rosary of Fetter Lane, he walks, Gray Auburn, one life is all, one body, do, but do. So that's Stephen's thought on Shakespeare. But then look, Bloom responds to that idea. Done, anyhow. Bloom's responding to the fact that he already wrote the PS, but it's still placed in there. There's that, con- yeah. that, that arranger person that Kenner talks about has put that in there. So it's almost like there's this psychic connection between Stephen and Bloom. Yeah. Right, and then of course, as we were talking when reading Skill and Charybdis, Bloom as a Shakespeare, right? Yeah. Molly as an Anne Hathaway. Definitely. Uh, by the way, uh, the next paragraph has um, the Barney Kiernans. I promised to meet them. Right, that's going to Cyclops. That's setting up Cyclops. But who is the them? I can't remember. Martin Cunningham. For what purpose? Because they've got to iron out the details for Dignam. For Dignam's yeah. kids' yeah. Uh, scholarship. Yeah, he doesn't want to do it, but he's he's got to do it, and that's. Of course, Cunningham shows up late, which causes problems. Yeah, that's right. All right, so the the tap tapping is coming, right? Yeah. Which I think is is you know a, a really interesting kind of musical motif that yeah. you know comes at the end. Of I this. like how it's the reverse of Pat, bald Pat. Yeah, Pat right. is tap. Pat tap. <laughs> and Pat's deaf. Yeah. yeah, and he's blind. And this guy's blind, right? So 
what, what are we supposed to do with that? I mean, does that make them more attuned to the other senses? What does that mean given the kind of gender, you know, kind of ideas that are clearly going into seeing yeah, and Yeah, because he's, he's been a major part of the whole episode. So we've heard, no, well, Pat, but also uh, the blind kid, because we've heard his bitch's bastard curse right. echoing throughout this whole thing, which is, of course, from Wandering Rocks. Is this the blind person that Bloom that helped, Bloom helped yeah. yeah, across the street? Right. Well, it's Hades, right? And uh, Lestragonians. I'm sorry, and the Lestragonians. Ryan Lestragonians, uh, I think. Is it Wandering Rocks? No, no, you're no, right. I think it's Lestragonians. It's Lestragonians. Lestragonians. Yeah. So, I, I don't know. I don't know what to do with it. I think it's, it's interesting, but beyond... There, there's some message underlying We know this. he's the... We, we, yeah, Bloom has already speculated that he's probably a piano tuner in Lestragonians. So yeah. it makes sense, just on the level of like a, a very real Dublin, that he would have had business in the Ormond. You have Simon already signaling it when, he's, when he rings the, the tuning fork. Just by ringing that, you got to have a tuning fork in Sirens, right? you got to have yeah, that pure, sure. perfect pitch. Then that, that's a nice opportunity to have that counterpoint. Boiling, going one way. Blind tuner, going to another way. What you're asking then is... No, that, that's... Yeah, okay. What you're asking... So that's beautiful for structure-wise. What you're asking is then what... Okay, so on top of that, what else is there lurking in that meaning? I, and I don't know. I mean, because Stephen and the blind tuner are both crappie boys because you have them linked in there and the crop, the singing of the crappie boy. Remember that part in the crappie boy song, like when you in the lyrics where he talks about how... He, he's going to confession. Remember, he's going to confession with a false priest. He doesn't realize that that priest is really the yeoman captain who's going to sell him out. He talks about his sins, and one of his sins is that he, he didn't pray for his mother. That's Stephen, That's of Stephen. course. Um, and that he cursed. And then immediately we hear that refrain of the, the crappie boy when he was knocked over by Tisdall, Fitzmorris, whatever. <laughs> you know, bitches, curses, bastard, whatever. And so I don't know why we're we're looking at like suddenly Stephen and the and the blind stripling stripling weather become like martyrs like the crappie boy, yeah. and then even when the when the, the the blind kid finally enters the Ormond Hotel, it's just like the song lyrics where the 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 crappie boy enters the the church for his confession, like he's framed in that exact same way. So it's it's freighted with all this meaning, but I don't know why. Yeah, I, I can't I can't make it all coalesce. You know, I, I'm, it has something to do with, with, um, I think the limitations of, of males. I don't know. Right. Because everybody in this, in this chapter is so lecherous looking at the sirens, you know, like, like Lenin, for said before. Bald Pat and the sign and, and, and the blind kid who and can't see, right. can't you know, see. <laughs> that, that, I don't know. Does that make them better not having these well, kind of? If you uh, think about it, then then needs? the then the know. blind kid is almost like a representative of perfect pitch, right? In that sense, like he's kind of like a center in that sense, which is associated with femininity. May, I don't, well, I don't know. I mean, Molly has perfect is. pitch, right? Because Molly, remember, there's that moment where how could Molly hear that the the hurdy gurdy boy was trying to say that his monkey was sick? Right, <laughs> that that, that seems sounds to like be, a euphemism. Right, no, but I think the idea is that she's got like that idea of perfect pitch, and that maybe there is like that feminine center there. But I don't know. I don't know if it's gendered. Yeah, I don't know either. Well, I mean, look, I'm just kind of playing with you know Elman's notions. Right, he's really hot on the the gendered you know um, you know symbolism for this. I well, I think you have to be. I mean, it's it's yeah. the sirens, right? I mean, that's absolutely. 
you know, siren call is because of the, the, why are you like the, the feminine voice is what's calling that. I don't think there's a reason why the sirens aren't like a bunch of burly cyclopses who yeah. sing beautifully. <laughs> but yeah, but you know what though? They are a bunch of dudes. In That's this, the one I miss, yeah. Right, yeah. which is the, the funny irony we Speaking of burly on. dudes, like just like in uh, Skill and Charybdis, my favorite passages were describing the Quaker librarian his <laughs> movements. My favorite passages in this are Ben Dollard when he's moving. <laughs> just it, every one of his movements is done so perfectly with his big slops and... Is <laughs> Castanets and whatnot. Molly talks about him earlier, right? Uh, well, Bloom, Bloom talks about, about Molly him, right? with that whole bass barrel tone voice. That's a bass barrel tone. That was an example right. of her of her wit, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. But then that idea of him and his belongings on show becomes kind of a refrain in this too. Yeah. All right, so let's go to the end. Yeah. Sure. Right. We have the um, the infamous uh, passing wind at the end. Which, right, I, I mean, I made the point before, but I ultimately think that is Joyce's view of valid music as well, right? That comes from the body that is, mm-hmm. you know, maybe not perfect pitch or anything, but organic. It's very much Bloom's view, too, right? I, Bloom right, has already yeah. made it, that it, point. It, it, it takes you back to lo- the end of Lotus Eaters. Yeah. I, I think it, it, Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, um, reading some of the, the kind of infamous or maybe just simply famous letters uh, when... Uh, Joyce was staying in Dublin, writing to, to almost said Molly, writing to Nora. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he does talk, you know, very graphically about the noises made during sex as though it's almost like a symphony. Oh, yeah? Yeah, so that, oh. I think you're absolutely right about that, that even Passing Wind could be, well, yeah, and, and, you know, you know, considered musical for him. And several times, Bloom, uh, Bloom does suggest, like, oh, that could be musical, that could be musical, every day organic sound. All right, so, so here's a contradiction, though. So remember he talks about the door closing in Rutledge's office in Eolus, right? Here, he oh, says, no, that's just noise. So that, if you're really going to say a door shutting is noise, then... Well, then isn't just, it noise because of what it's associated with, those guys? Maybe, maybe. And it's the machinery, right? He, no, but the machinery, I think he would say, is music. Yeah, I think that idea that slit, right? That, like, that's music. But for some reason, the door... But then again, like, you talk about the inconsistency. If he's not yeah. a real person, if he's a real person, he's going to have those contradictions. Yeah, I think it's Elman talks about how um, this runs kind of counter to Westergonians, right? Where, where Bloom goes in and he is kind of uh, disgusted by by the bestial nature of it so that he becomes almost kind of puritanical and, you know, uh, you know, wags a finger and leaves. Here, he kind of gives into the bestial nature by, but there's, by at the end. Right, There's because it's easier to succumb to the siren's call than the bestiality of the Burton, oh, is it Burton's I think he's in, with the mastication, yeah. like in all the gross spitting and whatnot. He even references that. Remember when he says, at least it's clean here, sitting with Richie, that guy, and yeah, the Burton's right. you know, spitting back his half-masticated gruel. Because we, we've established that Bloom's a man uh, of sensuous pleasure, not yes. of gluttony. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, I think that's it. It, it, it. What? So the sirens put him in mind to kind of let himself let go in a way. Or, or, or how about just his natural development? Yeah, or, or he, yeah, he feels comfortable and natural. I mean, there's also something to the idea that, you know, four o'clock has come and gone, you, you know, and... It's now time to relax a little because it's done, right? Yeah. I mean, look, the last word of the whole he doesn't have to worry episode about is done. I know that's the, was it Robert Emmett's epitaph or his yeah. last words, but done. Right. Yeah, when we meet him on, on Now Sicka, the very next, or not the next episode, but the episode after the next one, he's just relaxing on the beach. Yeah. 
It, right? It's assumed that his worries... It either happened or it didn't. I can't worry about it yeah. anymore. That anxiety has, has dissipated. Mm. He's, he's let go in terms of his bowels, in terms of his anxieties. Mm. Yeah, I think that's right. All right. That's a good one. I mean, overall, I got to say, like, just, like, pure <laughs> genius of ideas. Like, you know, like, there, it's too much to handle, man. It's a, it's, it's a really good chapter. Uh, I, I think, still think I probably prefer Skill and Charybdis because, I don't know, it just, uh, the literary talk, I think, is, is so playful and fun. But, you know, this is maybe the most impressive thing we've read so far, just as a, a kind of, like, big idea being put into the world and you know hmm. what's right. next yeah wait. next is cyclops, cyclops. which uh, yeah has some some i think very interesting ties to this chapter and it's funny and yeah i think it is it's very I, funny. yeah it's funnier than this so cool. right. and i don't have you guys listened to it yet no it's really funny to listen to listening. because oh man <laughs> listen to it dude it's so come good. on man you're a sucker well the, it's the, so good the two different narrative voices have to have different they narrations do. You know, absolutely have. every time like one of the epic like folklore things comes in it's like over the top and it's booming. fun man it's fun i, I really i i love this i i've been I, all i've been listening to are these uh are you still recording yeah, we're still talking. Uh, <laughs> I'm doing a Mark Maron. I'm, uh, I'm, uh, I'm listening to the episodes way too much. I don't even listen right. to music anymore. All right, we, we'll officially end there.